Chapter 6, Standards of Conduct, Section 6A, Overview, Introduction. In 1757, Lieutenant Colonel George Washington said, Discipline is the soul of an army. And those words still hold true in today's Air Force. Air Force standards must be uniformly known, consistently applied, and non-selectively enforced. Accountability is critically important to good order and discipline of the force. To navigate the necessary course of action and ensure mission accomplishment, a leader must be willing to use more than one approach. Failure to ensure accountability will destroy the trust of the American public, the very people living under the Constitution we swore to support and defend, and who look to us, the members of their nation's Air Force, to embrace and live by the standards that are higher than those in the society we serve. This chapter discusses the Law of Armed Conflict, Code of Conduct, and General Standards of Conduct. Airmen must learn these standards well enough not only to be able to follow them, but be able to articulate them clearly to subordinates and enforce proper observation by other members. Used in concert with information presented in Chapter 5 and Chapter 19, this chapter covers issues vital to mission effectiveness, especially in light of the Air Force Global Mission. Section 6B, Law of Armed Conflict. Law of Armed Conflict Defined. The law of war, as defined by the Department of Defense, DOD, is that part of international law that regulates the resort to armed force, the conduct of hostilities, and the protection of war victims in both international and non-international armed conflict, belligerent occupation, and the relationships between belligerent neutral and non-belligerent states. The law of war is often called the law of armed conflict. While DOD uses the term law of war, most Air Force doctrine and publications continue to use the term law of armed conflict. The law of armed conflict arises from civilized nations' humanitarian desire to lessen the effects of conflicts. Law of armed conflict protects combatants, non-combatants, and civilians from unnecessary suffering and provides certain fundamental protections for persons who fall into the hands of the enemy particularly prisoners of war, civilians, and military wounded, sick, and shipwrecked. The law also tries to keep conflicts from degenerating into savagery and brutality, thereby helping to restore peace. Law of Armed Conflict Policy DODD 2311.01E, Department of Defense Law of War Program, requires each military department to design a program that ensures law of armed conflict observance prevents violations, ensures prompt reporting of alleged violations, appropriately trains all forces, and completes a legal review of new weapons. Law of armed conflict training is an obligation of the U.S. under provisions of the 1949 Geneva Convention's other law of war treaties and customary international law. AFI 51-401, Training and Reporting to Ensure Compliance with the Law of Armed Conflict, requires that all Air Force personnel receive instruction on the principles and rules of the law of armed conflict commiserate with each member's duties and responsibilities. The training is of a general nature. However, certain groups, such as air crews, medical personnel, and security forces receive additional, specialized training to address the unique situations they may encounter. International and Domestic Law the law of armed conflict is embodied in both customary international law and treaties. Customary international law reflected in practices nations have come to accept as legally binding 
establishes many of the oldest rules that govern the conduct of military operations in armed conflict. Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution states that treaty obligations of the U.S. are the supreme law of the land, and the U.S. Supreme Court has held that U.S. international legal obligations to include custom is part of U.S. law. This means that treaties and international agreements with the U.S. enjoy equal status to laws passed by Congress and signed by the President. Therefore, all persons subject to U.S. law must observe the U.S. law of armed conflict obligations. Military personnel, civilians, and contractors authorized to accompany the armed forces in combat must consider the law of armed conflict to plan and execute operations and must obey law of armed conflict in combat. Those who commit violations may be criminally liable and court-martialed under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Principles Five important law of armed conflict principles govern armed conflict. Military necessity, distinction, proportionality, humanity, and honor. Military necessity. Military necessity is the principle that justifies the use of all measures needed to defeat the enemy as quickly and efficiently as possible that are not prohibited by the law of war. Attacks must be limited to military objectives. Certain classes of persons are military objectives and may be made the object of attack. These classes of persons include combatants or unprivileged belligerents and civilians taking a direct part in hostilities. Military objectives, insofar as objects are concerned, include any objects which by its nature, location, purpose, or use make an effective contribution to military action and whose total or partial destruction, capture, or neutralization in the circumstances ruling at the time offer a definite military advantage. Examples include tanks, military aircraft, bases, supplies, lines of communication, and headquarters. Military necessity does not authorize all military action and destruction. Under no circumstances may military necessity authorize actions specifically prohibited by the law of war, such as the murder of prisoners of war, ill treatment of prisoners of war or internees, the taking of hostages, or execution or reprisal against a person or object specifically protected from reprisal. Humanity. Although military necessity justifies certain actions necessary to defeat the enemy as quickly and efficiently as possible, military necessity cannot justify actions not necessary to achieve this purpose, such as cruelty or wanton violence. Moreover, once a military purpose has been achieved, inflicting more suffering is unnecessary and should be avoided. For example, if an enemy combatant has been placed hors de combat, e.g. incapacitated by being severely wounded or captured, no military purpose is served by continuing to attack him or her. Thus, the principle of humanity forbids making enemy combatants who have been placed hors de combat the object of attack. Humanity animates certain law of war rules, including prohibitions on weapons, that are calculated to cause superfluous injury and prohibitions on weapons that are inherently indiscriminate. For example, the 1907 Hague Convention prohibits the use of poison or poisoned weapons in combat. Also, indiscriminate chemical, biological, and bacterial weapons are banned by treaties because they cause unnecessary suffering. However, Using rifles to shoot prisoners of war, strafing civilians, firing on shipwrecked mariners or downed air crews are lawful weapons that may be used unlawfully. Distinction. This principle imposes a requirement to distinguish, also termed discriminate, 
between the civilian population or individual civilians not taking a direct part in the hostilities and combatant forces when engaged in military operations. Military force may be directed only against military objects or objectives and not against civilian objects. Civilian objects are protected from attack and include such objects as places of worship, schools, hospitals, and dwellings. Civilian objects can lose their protective status if they are used to make an effective contribution to military action. A defender has an obligation to separate civilians and civilian objects, either in the defender's country or in an occupied area, from military targets. Employment of voluntary or involuntary human shields to protect military objectives or individual military units or personnel is a fundamental violation of the law of war principle of distinction. Proportionality. Proportionality may be defined as the principle that even where one is justified in acting, one must not act in a way that is unreasonable or excessive. Proportionality generally weighs the justification for acting against the expected harms to determine whether the latter are disproportionate in comparison to the former. In war, incidental damage to the civilian population and civilian objects is unfortunate and tragic, but inevitable. Thus, applying the proportionality rule in conducting attacks does not require that no incidental damage result from attacks. Rather, this rule obliges persons to refrain from attacking where the expected harm incidental to such attacks would be excessive in relation to the military advantage anticipated to be gained. Proportionality most often refers to the standard applicable to persons conducting attacks. Proportionality considerations, however, may also be understood to apply to the party subject to attack, which must take feasible precautions to reduce the risk of incidental harm. Proportionality also plays a role in assessing whether weapons are prohibited because they are calculated to cause unnecessary suffering. Damages and casualties must be consistent with mission accomplishment and allowable risk to the attacking force. For example, the attacker need not expose its forces to extraordinary risks simply to avoid or minimize civilian losses. Honor. Honor requires a certain amount of fairness in offense and defense. In requiring a certain amount of fairness in offense and defense, honor reflects the principle that parties to a conflict must accept that certain limits exist on their ability to conduct hostilities. Honor also forbids resort to means, expedients, or conduct that would constitute a breach of trust with the enemy. For example, enemies must deal with one another in good faith in their non-hostile relations. And even in the conduct of hostilities, good faith prohibits, number one, killing or wounded enemy persons by resort to perfidy, number two, misusing certain signs, number three, fighting in the enemy's uniform, number four, feigning non-hostile relations in order to seek a military advantage, and number five, compelling nationals of a hostile party to take part in the operations of war directed against their own country. Honor, however, does not forbid parties from using ruses and other lawful deceptions against which the enemy ought to take measures to protect itself. The Protection of War Victims and Classes of Persons Some of the most important law of armed conflict rules come from the Geneva Conventions of 1949. The Geneva Conventions consist of four separate international treaties that aim to protect all persons taking no active part in hostilities, including members of armed forces, who have laid down their arms and those placed hors de combat by sickness, wounds, detention, or any other cause. 
These treaties also seek to protect civilians and private property. Categories of Personnel Geneva Convention Distinctions The Geneva Conventions distinguished between combatants, non-combatants, and civilians. Combatants Three classes of persons qualify as lawful or privileged combatants. Number one, members of the armed forces of a state that is party to a conflict aside from certain categories of medical and religious personnel. Number two, under certain conditions, members of militia or volunteer corps that are not part of the armed forces of a state but belong to a state. And number three, inhabitants of an area who participate in a kind of popular uprising to defend against foreign invaders, known as levée en masse. A combatant is commanded by a person responsible for subordinates, wears fixed distinctive emblems recognizable at a distance, such as uniforms, carries arms openly, and conducts his or her combat operations according to law of armed conflict. Lawful or privileged combatants are entitled to prisoner of war status if captured and cannot be prosecuted for their lawful conduct in an armed conflict. Non-combatants Non-combatants include certain military personnel who are members of the armed forces, not authorized to engage in combatant activities, such as permanent medical personnel and chaplains. Non-combatants must be respected and protected and may not be made the object of attack. Civilians Civilians are also protected persons and may not be made the object of direct attack. They may, however, suffer injury or death incident to a direct attack on a military objective without such an attack violating law of armed conflict, if such an attack is on a lawful target by lawful means. With limited exceptions, the law of armed conflict does not authorize civilians to take an active or direct part in hostilities. Civilians who take a direct part in hostilities without authority to do so are unprivileged belligerent and can be made the object of attack when participating in hostiles. Unprivileged belligerents, a distinction not made by the Geneva Conventions. The term unprivileged belligerent is not used in the Geneva Conventions. The term unprivileged belligerent, as defined in the DOD Manual on the Law of War, includes lawful combatants who have forfeited the privileges of combatant status by engaging in spying or sabotage, and private persons who have forfeited one or more of the protections of civilian status by engaging in hostilities. An unprivileged belligerent is an individual who is not authorized by a state that is party to a conflict to take part in hostilities but does so anyway. For example, civilians who plant improvised explosive devices are unprivileged belligerents. Undetermined status. Should doubt exist as to whether a captured individual is a lawful combatant, non-combatant, or an unprivileged belligerent, the individual will receive the protections of the Geneva Prisoner of War Convention until status is determined. Military Objectives The law of armed conflict governs the conduct of aerial warfare. The principle of military necessity authorizes aerial attacks on combatants and other lawful military objectives. Military objectives are limited to those objects or installations that by their own nature, location, purpose, or use make an effective contribution to military action and whose total or partial destruction, capture, or neutralization in the circumstances existing at the time offer a definite military advantage. Protection of Civilians and Civilian Objects Law of armed conflict protects civilian populations. Military attacks against cities, towns, or villages not justified by military necessity are forbidden. 
Attacking civilians for the sole purpose of terrorizing them is also prohibited. Although civilians may not be made the object of a direct attack, law of armed conflict recognizes that a military objective need not be spared because its destruction may cause collateral damage that results in the unintended death or injury to civilians or damage to their property. Commanders and their planners must take into consideration the extent of damage to civilian objects and casualties anticipated as a result of an attack on a military objective and seek to avoid or minimize civilian casualties and destruction. Anticipated damage to civilian objects and civilian casualties must not be disproportionate to the military advantage sought. Judge advocate, intelligence, and operations personnel play a critical role in determining the propriety of a target and the choice of weapon to be used under the particular circumstances known to the commander when planning an attack. Protected Objects The law of armed conflict provides specific protection to certain objects, including medical units or establishments, transports of wounded and sick personnel, military and civilian hospital ships, safety zones established under the Geneva Conventions, religious, cultural, and charitable buildings, monuments, and prisoner of war camps. However, if these protected objects are used for military purposes, they lose their protective status. Protected objects near lawful military objectives that suffer collateral damage when the nearby military objectives are lawfully engaged does not violate law of armed conflict. Aircraft and Combat Enemy Military Aircraft and Aircrew Enemy military aircraft may be attacked and destroyed whenever found, unless in neutral airspace or territory. Airmen who parachute from a disabled aircraft and offer no resistance may not be attacked. Airmen who resist in descent or are downed behind their own lines and who continue to fight may be subject to attack. The rules of engagement for a particular operation often include additional guidance for attacking enemy aircraft consistent with law of armed conflict obligations. Enemy Civilian Aircraft An enemy's public and private non-military aircraft are generally not subject to attack unless used for a military purpose. Since World War II, Nations have increasingly recognized the necessity to avoid attacking civil aircraft. Under exceptional conditions, however, civil aircraft in flight may be lawfully attacked. If a civil aircraft initiates an attack, it may be considered an immediate military threat and may be lawfully attacked. An immediate military threat justifying an attack may also exist when reasonable suspicion exists of a hostile intent, such as when a civil aircraft approaches a military base at high speed or enters enemy territory without permission and disregards signals or warnings to land or proceed to a designated place. Military Medical Aircraft Military medical aircraft are used exclusively for the removal of the wounded and sick and for the transport of medical personnel and equipment. Military medical aircraft are entitled to protection from attack by enemy combatants while flying at heights, times, and on routes specifically agreed upon between the parties to the conflict. Under law of armed conflict, a military medical aircraft could be lawfully attacked and destroyed if military medical aircraft initiates an attack, does not bear a clearly marked red cross, red crescent, or other recognized symbol, and is not otherwise known to be engaged in medical operations at the time does not fly at heights at times or on routes specifically agreed to by the parties to the conflict and is not otherwise known to be engaged in medical operations at the time, flies over enemy territory or enemy-occupied territory unless otherwise agreed upon by the parties and is not otherwise known to be engaged in medical operations at the time, 
approaches enemy's territory or a combat zone and disregards a summons to land and is not otherwise known to be engaged in medical operations at the time. Enforcing Law of Armed Conflict Rules Prosecution Military members who violate law of armed conflict are subject to criminal prosecution and punishment. Criminal prosecutions may take place in a national or international forum. U.S. armed forces could be prosecuted by a court-martial under the Uniform Code of Military Justice or through an international military tribunal, such as those used in Nuremberg and Tokyo after World War II. I was only following orders generally is not accepted by national or international tribunals as a war crime defense. Individual airmen are responsible for their actions and must comply with the law of armed conflict. Commanders can also be held criminally responsible for the actions of their subordinates through the doctrine of command responsibility. Commanders can be held criminally liable for the conduct of their subordinates when they issued illegal orders or when they either knew or should have known that their subordinates were committing war crimes. Reprisal. Reprisals are the commission of otherwise illegal acts that, under the circumstances, may be justified as a last resort to put an end to illegal acts committed first by the adversary. For example, If any enemy employs illegal weapons against a state, the victim may resort to the use of weapons that would otherwise be unlawful in order to compel the enemy to cease using the weapon. Reprisals can be legally justified if they meet certain requirements. Authority to approve reprisals is held at the highest decision-making level. Only the president of the U.S. as commander-in-chief may authorize U.S. forces to take such an action. Reporting Violations AFPD 51-4 includes guidance for personnel who suspect or have information which might reasonably be viewed as a violation of the law of armed conflict committed by or against U.S. personnel, enemy personnel, or any other individual shall promptly report the violation to their immediate commander. An Air Force member who knows or receives a report of an apparent law of armed conflict violation must inform his or her commander. This includes violations by the enemy, allies, U.S. armed forces, or others. If the allegation involves or may involve a U.S. commander, the report should be made to the next higher U.S. command authority. Particular circumstances may require that the report be made to the nearest judge advocate, inspector general, a special agent in the Office of Special Investigations, or a security forces member. Rules of Engagement Rules of engagement exist to ensure use of force in an operation occurs according to national policy goals, mission requirements, and the rule of law. In general, rules of engagement set parameters for when, where, how, why, and against whom commanders and their airmen may use force. Mission-specific rules of engagement present a more detailed application of law of armed conflict principles, tailored to the political and military nature of a mission which are contained in execution orders, operation plans, and operations orders. All airmen have a duty and a legal obligation to understand, remember, and apply mission rules of engagement. Failure to comply with rules of engagement may be punishable under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. The U.S. Standing Rules of Engagement, approved by the President and Secretary of Defense and issued by the Chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff provide implementation guidance on the inherent right of self-defense and the application of force for mission accomplishment. Commanders at every echelon have an obligation to ensure that mission rules of engagement comply with the standing rules of engagement. Self-defense. 
The fundamental U.S. policy on self-defense is repeatedly stated throughout the standing rules of engagement. These rules do not limit a commander's inherent authority and obligation to use all necessary means available to take all appropriate actions in self-defense of the commander's unit and other U.S. forces in the vicinity. Self-defense methods include national, collective, unit, and individual. Several elements must be considered before undertaking the use of force in self-defense. De-escalation. When time and circumstances permit, the forces committing hostile acts or hostile intent should be warned and given the opportunity to withdraw or cease threatening actions. Necessity. Rules of engagement necessity exist if a hostile act is committed or hostile intent is demonstrated against U.S. forces or other designated persons or property. A hostile act is defined as force used against the U.S., U.S. forces, designated persons, and property, or intended to impede the mission of U.S. forces. Hostile intent is the threat of imminent use of force against the U.S., U.S. forces, designated persons and property, or intended to impede the mission of U.S. forces. Rules of engagement necessity relate to the threat perceived by an individual and is different from the law of armed conflict concept of military necessity. Proportionality In self-defense, U.S. forces may only use the amount of force necessary to decisively counter a hostile act or a demonstration of hostile intent and ensure the continued safety of U.S. forces or other designated persons and property. Force used must be reasonable in intensity, duration, and magnitude compared to the threat based on facts known to the commander at the time. Rules of engagement proportionality refers to the reasonableness of the response to a threat and is different to the law of armed conflict concept of proportionality. Pursuit U.S. forces can pursue and engage a hostile force that has committed a hostile act or demonstrated a hostile intent if those forces continue to commit hostile acts or demonstrate hostile intent. Applicable rules of engagement may restrict a place limitations on U.S. forces' ability to pursue or engage a hostile force across an international border. Section 6C Code of Conduct Policy The Code of Conduct outlines basic responsibilities and obligations of members of the U.S. Armed Forces. All members are expected to measure up to the standards described in the Code of Conduct. Although developed for prisoners of war, the spirit and intent are applicable to service members subject to other hostile detention. Such service members should consistently conduct themselves in a manner that brings credit to them and their country. The six articles of the Code of Conduct address situations and decision areas that any member could encounter to some degree. The Code of Conduct includes basic information useful to prisoners of war to help them survive honorably while resisting captors' efforts to exploit them. Such survival and resistance require knowledge and understanding of the articles. Training DOD personnel who plan, schedule, commit, or control members of the armed forces must fully understand the Code of Conduct and ensure personnel have the training and education necessary to abide by it. How much knowledge members need depends on how likely they are to be captured, their exposure to sensitive information, and how useful or valuable a captor considers them. Training is conducted at three levels. Level A, entry-level training. Level A represents the minimum level of understanding needed for all members of the armed forces. This level is imparted to all personnel during entry training. Level B, training after assumption of duty eligibility. 
Level B is the minimum level of understanding needed for service members whose military jobs, specialties, or assignments entail moderate risk of capture, such as members of ground combat units. Training is conducted for such service members as soon as their assumption of duty makes them eligible. Level C, training upon assumption of duties or responsibilities. Level C is the minimum level of understanding needed for military service members whose military jobs, specialties, or assignments entail significant or high risk of capture and whose position, rank, or seniority makes them vulnerable to greater than average exploitation efforts by a captor. Examples include air crews and special mission forces, such as Air Force pararescue teams. Training for these members is conducted upon their assumption of the duties or responsibilities that make them eligible. The Articles of the Code of Conduct President Dwight D. Eisenhower first published the Code of Conduct for Members of the Armed Forces of the U.S. on 17 August 1955. In March 1988, President Ronald W. Reagan amended the code with gender-neutral language. Article 1. I am an American, fighting in the forces which guard my country and our way of life. I am prepared to give my life in their defense. Explanation. Article 1 applies to all members at all times. A member of the armed forces has a duty to support U.S. interests and oppose U.S. enemies regardless of the circumstances, whether in active combat or captivity. Training. Familiarity with the wording and basic meaning is necessary to understand that. Past experience of captured Americans reveals that honorable survival in captivity requires a high degree of dedication and motivation. Maintaining these qualities requires knowledge of and a strong belief in the advantages of American democratic institutions and concepts. Maintaining these qualities also requires a love of and faith in the U.S. and a conviction that the U.S. cause is just. Honorable survival in captivity depends on faith in and loyalty to fellow prisoners of war. Note. Possessing the dedication and motivation fostered by such beliefs and trust may help prisoners of war survive long, stressful periods of captivity and has helped many return to their country and families with their honor and self-esteem intact. Article 2. I will never surrender of my own free will. If in command, I will never surrender the members of my command while they still have the means to resist. Explanation. Members of the armed forces may never surrender voluntarily. Even when isolated and no longer able to inflict casualties on the enemy or otherwise defend themselves, their duty is to evade capture and rejoin the nearest friendly force. Only when evasion is impossible and further fighting would lead to their death with no significant loss to the enemy may the means to resist or evade be considered exhausted. Training Service members who are cut off, shot down, or otherwise isolated in enemy-controlled territory must make every effort to avoid capture. Actions available include concealment until recovered by friendly rescue forces, evasive travel to a friendly or neutral territory, and evasive travel to other pre-reefed areas. Members must understand that capture is not dishonorable if all reasonable means of avoiding it have been exhausted, and the only alternative is death. Service members must understand and have confidence in search and recovery forces, rescue procedures and techniques, and proper evasion destination procedures. Article 3. If I am captured, I will continue to resist by all means available. I will make every effort to escape and aid others to escape. I will accept neither parole nor special favors from the enemy. Explanation 
In Armed Forces, members' duty to continue to resist enemy exploitation by all means available is not lessened by the misfortune of capture. Contrary to the 1949 Geneva Conventions, enemies U.S. forces have engaged since 1949 have treated the prisoner of war compound as an extension of the battlefield. The prisoner of war must be prepared for this. Enemies have used a variety of tactics to exploit prisoners of war for propaganda purposes or to obtain military information, in spite of Geneva Convention's prohibition. Physical and mental harassment, general mistreatment, torture, medical neglect, and political indoctrination have all been used, and the enemy has tried to tempt prisoners of war to accept special favors or privileges in return for statements or information or for a pledge by the prisoner of war not to attempt escape. A prisoner of war must not seek special privileges or accept special favors at the expense of fellow prisoners of war. Under the guidance and supervision of the senior military person, the prisoner of war must be prepared to take advantage of escape opportunities. In communal detention, the welfare of the prisoners of war who remain behind must be considered. Additionally, prisoners of war should not sign or enter into a parole agreement. Parole agreements are promises the prisoners of war make to the captor to fulfill stated conditions, such as not to bear arms in exchange for special privileges, such as release or lessened restraint. Training. Members should understand that captivity involves continuous control by a captor who may attempt to use the prisoner of war as a source of information for political purposes or as a potential subject for political indoctrination. Members must familiarize themselves with prisoner of war and captor rights and obligations under the Geneva Conventions, understanding that some captors have accused prisoners of war of being war criminals simply because they waged war against them. Continued efforts to escape are critical because a successful escape causes the enemy to divert forces that may otherwise be fighting, provides the U.S. valuable information about the enemy and other prisoners of war, and serves as a positive example to all members of the armed forces. Article 4. If I become a prisoner of war, I will keep faith with my fellow prisoners. I will give no information or take part in any action which might be harmful to my comrades. If I am senior, I will take command. If not, I will obey the lawful orders of those appointed over me and will back them up in every way. Explanation. Officers and NCOs continue to carry out their responsibilities and exercise authority in captivity. Informing or any other action detrimental to a fellow prisoner of war is despicable and expressly forbidden. Prisoners of war must avoid helping the enemy identify fellow prisoners of war who may have valuable knowledge to the enemy. Strong leadership is essential to discipline. Without discipline, camp organization, resistance, and even survival may be impossible. Personal hygiene, camp sanitation, and care of the sick and wounded are imperative. Wherever located, prisoners of war must organize in a military manner under the senior military prisoner of war, regardless of military service. If the senior prisoner of war is incapacitated or otherwise unable to act, the next senior prisoner of war assumes command. Training. Members must be trained to understand and accept leadership from those in command and abide by the decisions of the senior prisoner of war, regardless of military service. Failing to do so may result in legal proceedings under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Additionally, a prisoner of war who voluntarily informs or collaborates with the captor is a traitor to the U.S. and fellow prisoners of war, and after repatriation, is subject to punishment under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Service members must be familiar with the principles of hygiene, sanitation, health maintenance, first aid, 
physical conditioning, and food utilization. Article 5. When questioned, should I become a prisoner of war, I am required to give name, rank, service number, and date of birth. I will evade answering further questions to the utmost of my ability. I will make no oral or written statements disloyal to my country and its allies or harmful to their cause. Explanation. When questioned, a prisoner of war is required by the Geneva Conventions and permitted by the Uniform Code of Military Justice to give name, rank, service number, and date of birth. Under the Geneva Conventions, the enemy has no right to try to force a prisoner of war to provide any additional information. However, it is unrealistic to expect a prisoner of war to remain confined for years, reciting only name, rank, service number, and date of birth. Many prisoner of war camp situations exist in which certain types of conversation with the enemy are permitted. For example, a prisoner of war is allowed but not required by the Code of Conduct, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, or the Geneva Conventions to fill out a Geneva Conventions capture card, to write letters home, and to communicate with captors on matters of health and welfare. The senior prisoner of war is required to represent prisoners of war in matters of camp administration, health, welfare, and grievances. A prisoner of war must resist, avoid, or evade, even when physically and mentally coerced, all enemy efforts to secure statements or actions that may further the enemy's cause. Examples of statements or actions prisoners of war should resist include giving oral or written confessions, answering questionnaires, providing personal history statements, and making propaganda recordings and broadcast appeals to other prisoners of war to comply with improper captor demands. Additionally, prisoners of war should resist appealing for U.S. surrender or parole, engaging in self-criticism, or providing oral or written statements or communication that are harmful to the U.S., its allies, the armed forces, or other prisoners of war. Experience has shown that although enemy interrogation sessions may be harsh and cruel, a prisoner of war can usually resist if there is a will to resist. The best way for a prisoner of war to keep faith with the U.S., fellow prisoners of war, and him or herself is to provide the enemy with as little information as possible. Training. Service members familiarize themselves with the various aspects of interrogation, including phases, procedures, and methods and techniques, as well as the interrogator's goals, strengths, and weaknesses. Members should avoid disclosing information by such techniques as claiming inability to furnish information because of previous orders, poor memory, ignorance, or lack of comprehension. They should understand that short of death, a prisoner of war may prevent a skilled enemy interrogator using all available psychological and physical methods of coercion from obtaining some degree of compliance by the prisoner of war is unlikely. However, the prisoner of war must recover as quickly as possible and resist successive efforts to the utmost. Article 6. I will never forget that I am an American fighting for freedom, responsible for my actions, and dedicated to the principles which made my country free. I will trust in my God and in the United States of America. Explanation. A member of the armed forces remains responsible for personal actions at all times. When repatriated, prisoners of war can expect their actions to be subject to review, both circumstances of capture and conduct during detention. The purpose of such a review is to recognize meritorious performance and, if necessary, investigate any allegations of misconduct. Such reviews are conducted with due regard for the rights of the individual in consideration for the conditions of captivity. Training Members must understand the relationship between the Uniform Code of Military Justice and the Code of Conduct, 
and realize that failure to follow the guidance may result in violations punishable under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and they may be held legally accountable for their actions. They should also understand that the U.S. government will use every available means to establish contact with prisoners of war to support them and to obtain their release. Furthermore, U.S. laws provide for the support and care of dependents of the armed forces, including prisoners of war family members. Military members must ensure their personal affairs and family matters are up to date at all times. Detention of U.S. military personnel and operations other than war. Policy. U.S. military personnel isolated from U.S. control are still required to do everything in their power to follow DOD and Air Force policy and survive with honor. DODI 1300.21. Code of Conduct, COC, Training and Education Enclosure 3, provides guidance to military members who find themselves isolated during operations other than war or in a situation not addressed specifically in the Code of Conduct. All military departments establish procedures to ensure U.S. military personnel are familiar with the guidance in this publication. Rationale. Because of their wide range of activities, U.S. military personnel are subject to detention by unfriendly governments or captivity by terrorist groups. When a hostile government or terrorist group detains or captures U.S. military personnel, the captor is often attempting to exploit both the individual and the U.S. government for its own purposes. As history has shown, exploitation can take many forms, such as hostage confessions to crimes never committed, international news media exploitation, and substantial ransom demands, all of which can lead to increased credibility and support for the detainer. Responsibility U.S. military personnel detained by unfriendly governments or held hostage by a terrorist group must do everything in their power to survive with honor. Furthermore, whether U.S. military personnel are detained or held hostage, they can be sure the U.S. government will make every effort to obtain their release. To best survive the situation, military personnel must maintain faith in their country, in fellow detainees or captives, and most importantly, in themselves. And any group captivity situation Military captives must organize to the fullest extent possible under the senior military member present. If civilians are part of the group, they should be encouraged to participate. U.S. military personnel must make every reasonable effort to prevent captors from exploiting them and the U.S. government. If exploitation cannot be prevented, military members must attempt to limit it. If detainees convince their captors of their low propaganda value, the captors may seek a quick end to the situation. When a detention or hostage situation ends, military members who can honestly say they did their utmost to resist exploitation will have upheld DOD policy, the founding principles of the U.S., and the highest traditions of military service. Military Bearing and Courtesy U.S. military personnel shall maintain their military bearing regardless of the type of detention or captivity or harshness of treatment. They should make every effort to remain calm, courteous, and project personal dignity. That is particularly important during the process of capture and the early stages of internment when the captors may be uncertain of their control over the captives. Discourteous, non-military behavior seldom serves the long-term interest of a detainee or hostage and often results in unnecessary punishment that serves no useful purpose. Such behavior often results in punishment that serves no useful purpose. In some situations, such behavior may jeopardize survival and severely complicate efforts to gain release of the detainee or hostage.
Guidance for Detention by Governments. Detainees in the custody of a hostile government, regardless of the circumstances that resulted in the detention, are subject to the laws of that government. Detainees must maintain military bearing and avoid aggressive, combative, or illegal behavior that may complicate their situation, legal status, or efforts to negotiate a rapid release. As American citizens, detainees should ask immediately and continually to see U.S. embassy personnel or a representative of an allied or neutral government. U.S. military personnel who become lost or isolated in a hostile foreign country during operations other than war will not act as combatants during evasion attempts. During operations other than war, there is no protection afforded under the Geneva Convention. The civil laws of that country apply. A detainer's goal may be maximum political exploitation. Therefore, detained U.S. military personnel must be cautious in all they say and do. In addition to asking for a U.S. representative, detainees should provide name, rank, service number, date of birth, and the innocent circumstances leading to their detention. They should limit further discussion to health and welfare matters, conditions of their fellow detainees, and going home. Detainees should avoid signing any document or making any statement oral or otherwise. If forced, they must provide as little information as possible and then continue to resist. Detainees are not likely to earn their release by cooperation. Rather, release may be gained by resisting, thereby reducing the value of the detainee. U.S. military detainees should not refuse release unless doing so requires them to compromise their honor or cause damage to the U.S. government or its allies. Escape attempts must be made only after carefully considering the risk of violence, chance of success, and detrimental effects on detainees remaining behind. Jailbreak in most countries is a crime. Escape attempts can provide the detainer further justification to hold the individual. Terrorist hostage. Capture by terrorist is generally the least predictable and structured form of operations other than war captivity. Capture can range from a spontaneous kidnapping to a carefully planned hijacking. In either situation, hostages play an important role in determining their own fate because terrorists rarely expect to receive rewards for providing good treatment or releasing victims unharmed. U.S. military members should assume their captors are genuine terrorists when unclear if they are surrogates of a government. A terrorist hostage situation is more volatile than a government detention. So members must take steps to lessen the chance of a terrorist indiscriminately killing hostages. In such a situation, DOD policy accepts and promotes efforts to establish rapport between U.S. hostages and the terrorists in order to establish themselves as people in the terrorist mind rather than a stereotypical symbol of a country the terrorist may hate. DOD policy recommends U.S. personnel talk to terrorists about non-substantive subjects, such as family, sports, and hobbies. They should stay away from topics that could inflame terrorist sensibilities, such as their cause, politics, or religion. Listening can be vitally important when survival is at stake. Members should take an active role in the conversation, but should not argue, patronize, or debate issues with the captors. They should try to reduce tension and make it as hard as possible for terrorists to identify U.S. personnel as troublemakers, which may mark them for murder. Section 6D, Everyday Conduct, Overview 
The importance of the Air Force mission and responsibility to the nation requires members adhere to higher standards than non-military members. Every person is accountable for his or her own actions on duty and off. Supervisors must hold subordinates accountable and take corrective action if they do not fulfill their responsibilities. Members must remember and reflect the Air Force core values, integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do, in everything they do. Policy, DODD 5500.07, Standards of Conduct. DOD 5500.07-R, the Joint Ethics Regulation, JER, and AFI 1-1 Air Force Standards provide guidance to Air Force personnel on standards of conduct. Military members who violate the punitive provisions may be prosecuted under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Civilian violations may result in disciplinary action without regard to the issue of criminal liability. Military members and civilian employees who violate these standards, even if such violations do not constitute criminal misconduct, are subject to administrative actions, such as reprimands. Contact the base legal office for assistance. Ethical Values Ethics are standards of conduct based on values. Values are core beliefs, such as duty, honor, and integrity that motivate attitudes and actions. Not all values are ethical values. Integrity is, happiness is not. Ethical values relate to what is right and wrong, and thus take precedence over non-ethical values when making ethical decisions. DOD employees who make decisions as part of their official duties should carefully consider ethical values. Primary ethical values include honesty, Being truthful, straightforward, and candid are aspects of honesty. Truthfulness is required. Deceptions are usually easily uncovered. Lies erode credibility and undermine public confidence. Untruths told for seemingly altruistic reasons, to prevent hurt feelings, to promote goodwill, etc., are nonetheless resented by the recipients. Straightforwardness adds frankness to truthfulness and is usually necessary to promote public confidence and to ensure effective, efficient conduct of operations. Truths presented in such a way as to lead recipients to confusion, misinterpretation, or inaccurate conclusions are not productive. Such indirect deceptions can promote ill will and erode openness, especially when there is an expectation of frankness. Candor is the forthright offering of unrequested information. This ethical value is necessary according to the gravity of the situation and the nature of the relationships. Candor is required when a reasonable person would feel betrayed if the information was withheld. In some circumstances, silence is dishonest, yet in other circumstances, disclosing information would be wrong and perhaps unlawful. Integrity Being faithful to one's convictions is part of integrity. Following principles, acting with honor, maintaining independent judgment, and performing duties with impartiality help to maintain integrity and avoid conflicts of interest and hypocrisy. Loyalty, fidelity, faithfulness, allegiance, and devotion are all synonyms for loyalty. Loyalty is the bond that holds the nation and the U.S. government together and the balm against dissension and conflict. This ethical value is not blind obedience or unquestioning acceptance of the status quo. Loyalty requires careful balance among various interests, values, and institutions in the interest of harmony and cohesion. Accountability 
DOD employees are required to accept responsibility for their decisions and the resulting consequences. This includes avoiding even the appearance of impropriety. Accountability promotes careful, well-thought-out decisions and limits thoughtless action. Fairness. Open-mindedness and impartiality are important aspects of fairness. DOD employees must be committed to justice in the performance of their official duties. Decisions must not be arbitrary, capricious, or biased. Individuals must be treated equally and with tolerance. Caring. Compassion is an essential element of good government. Courtesy and kindness, both to those we serve and to those with whom we work, help to ensure individuals are not treated solely as a means to an end. Caring for others is the counterbalance against the temptation to pursue the mission at any cost. Respect. To treat people with dignity, to honor privacy, and to allow self-determination are critical in a government of diverse people. Lack of respect leads to a breakdown of loyalty and honesty within a government and brings chaos to the international community. Promise-keeping. No government can function for long if its commitments are not kept. DOD employees are obligated to keep their promises in order to promote trust and cooperation. Because of the importance of promise-keeping, DOD employees must only make commitments within their authority. Responsible Citizenship Responsible citizenship is the duty of every citizen, especially DOD employees, to exercise discretion. Public servants are expected to engage, employ, personal judgment in the performance of official duties within the limits of their authority so that the will of the people is respected according to democratic principles. Justice must be pursued and injustice must be challenged through accepted means. Pursuit of Excellence In public service, competence is only the starting point. DOD employees are expected to set an example of superior diligence and commitment. They are expected to strive beyond mediocrity. Professional and unprofessional relationships. Professional relationships are essential to the effective operation of all organizations, military and civilian, but the nature of the military mission requires absolute confidence in command and an unhesitating adherence to orders that may result in inconvenience, hardships, injury, or death. While personal relationships between Air Force members are normally matters of individual choice and judgment, They become matters of official concern when they adversely affect or have the reasonable potential to adversely affect the Air Force by eroding morale, good order, discipline, respect for authority, unit cohesion, or mission accomplishment. AFI 36-2909, Professional and Unprofessional Relationships, establishes responsibilities for maintaining professional relationships. Professional Relationships Professional relationships contribute to the effective operation of the Air Force. The Air Force encourages personnel to communicate freely with their superiors regarding their careers and performance, duties, and missions. This type of communication enhances morale and discipline and improves the operational environment while at the same time preserving proper respect for authority and focus on the mission. Participation by members of all grades in organizational activities, such as base intramural, inter-service, and intra-service athletic competitions, unit-sponsored events, religious activities, community welfare projects, and youth programs, enhances morale and contributes to unit cohesion. Unprofessional Relationships 
Unprofessional relationships, whether pursued on or off-duty, are those relationships that detract from the authority of superiors or result in or reasonably create the appearance of favoritism, misuse of office or position, or the abandonment of organizational goals for personal interest. Unprofessional relationships can exist between officers, between enlisted members, between officers and enlisted members, and between military personnel and civilian employees or contractor personnel. Familiar relationships in which one member exercises supervisory or command authority and relationships that involve shared living accommodations, vacations, transportation, or off-duty interest on a frequent or recurring basis in the absence of any official purpose or organizational benefit present a high risk of becoming unprofessional. Fraternization Fraternization is an aggravated form of unprofessional relationship. As defined by the Manual for Courts Martial, fraternization is a personal relationship between an officer and an enlisted member that violates the customary bounds of acceptable behavior in the Air Force and prejudices good order and discipline, discredits the armed services, or operates to the personal disgrace or dishonor of the officer involved. The custom recognizes that officers will not form personal relationships with enlisted members on terms of military equality, whether on or off duty. Although the custom originated in an all-male military, fraternization is gender neutral. Fraternization can occur between males, between females, and between males and females. Because of the potential damage fraternization can do to morale, good order, discipline, and unit cohesion, Fraternization is specifically prohibited in the Manual for Courts Martial and punishable under Article 134 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. General Guidelines on Avoiding Unprofessional Relationships Including Fraternization Military experience has shown that certain kinds of personal relationships present a high risk for being or developing into unprofessional relationships. Unprofessional relationships negatively impact morale and discipline. While some personal relationships are not initially unprofessional, they may become unprofessional when circumstances change. For example, factors that can change an otherwise permissible relationship into an unprofessional relationship include the members' relative positions in the organization and the members' relative positions in the supervisory and command chains. Air Force members, both officer and enlisted, must be sensitive to forming these relationships and consider the probable impact of their actions on the Air Force in making their decisions. The rules regarding these relationships must be somewhat elastic to accommodate differing conditions. However, the underlying standard is that Air Force members are expected to avoid relationships that negatively affect morale and discipline. When economic constraints or operational requirements place officers and enlisted members of different grades in close proximity with one another, such as combined or joint clubs, joint recreational facilities, or mixed officer and enlisted housing areas, military members are expected to maintain professional relationships. Although maintaining professional relationships is more difficult under certain circumstances, it does not excuse a member's responsibility to maintain standards. Relationships within an organization. Unduly familiar relationships between members in which one member exercises supervisory or command authority over the other can easily be or become unprofessional. Similarly, as differences in grades increase, even in the absence of a command or supervisory relationship, there may be more risk that the relationship will become 
or is perceived to be unprofessional because senior members in military organizations normally exercise authority or have some direct or indirect organizational influence over more junior members. The danger for abuse of authority is always present. A senior member's ability to directly or indirectly influence assignments, promotion recommendations, duties, awards, or other privileges and benefits places both the senior and junior members in a vulnerable position. Once established, such relationships do not go unnoticed by other members of the unit. Service members must also avoid unprofessional relationships, including fraternization between members of different services, particularly in joint service operations, because such relationships may have the same impact on morale and discipline as they would for members assigned to the same service. Relationships with Civilian Employees Civilian employees and contractor personnel are an integral part of the Air Force. They contribute directly to readiness and mission accomplishment. Consequently, military members of all grades must maintain professional relationships with civilian employees, particularly those whom they supervise or direct. They must avoid relationships that adversely affect or reasonably might adversely affect morale, discipline, and respect for authority, or that violate law or regulation. Dating and Close Friendships Dating, intimate relationships, and close friendships between men and women are subject to the same policy considerations as are other relationships. Like any personal relationship, they become a matter of official concern when they adversely affect morale, discipline, unit cohesion, respect for authority, or mission accomplishment. Members must recognize that these relationships can adversely affect morale and discipline, even when the members are not in the same chain of command or unit. The formation of such relationships between superiors and subordinates within the same chain of command or supervision is prohibited because such relationships invariably raise the perception of favoritism or misuse of position and erode morale, discipline, and unit cohesion. Shared Activities Sharing living accommodations, vacations, transportation, and off-duty interests on a frequent or recurring basis can be perceived as unprofessional. Often, the frequency of these activities or the absence of an official purpose or organizational benefit is what causes them to become or to be perceived as unprofessional. While an occasional round of golf, game of racquetball, or similar activity between a supervisor and subordinate could remain professional, Daily or weekly occurrences could result in at least a perception of an unprofessional relationship. Similarly, while it may be appropriate for a first sergeant to play golf with a different group of officers from his or her organization each weekend in order to get to know them better, playing with the same officers every weekend may be or be perceived as unprofessional. Training, Schools, and Professional Military Education Personal relationships between recruiters and potential recruits during the recruiting process or between students and faculty or staff in training schools or professional military education settings are generally prohibited. These interpersonal relationships are especially susceptible to abuse of position, partiality, or favoritism, or can easily create the appearance of such. This is particularly true during the recruiting process and in basic military training because the potential recruit or junior military member is often unfamiliar with Air Force standards and dependent on the senior member, and the senior member is in a position to directly affect, positively or negatively, the career of the junior member. Other Relationships 
Other relationships not specifically addressed, depending on the circumstances, can lead to actual or perceived favoritism or preferential treatment and must be avoided. Examples of activities that may adversely impact morale, discipline, and respect for authority include gambling, partying with subordinates, soliciting or making solicited sales to subordinates, joint business ventures, or soliciting or making solicited sales to members junior in rank, grade, or position. Consequences of Unprofessional Conduct Military members are subject to lawful orders. When a military member has been lawfully ordered to cease an unprofessional relationship or refrain from certain conduct, the military member is subject to prosecution under the Uniform Code of Military Justice for violating the order. Similarly, all military members are subject to prosecution for criminal offenses committed incidental to an unprofessional relationship, such as gambling, adultery, or assault. Responsibilities for Professional Relationships individuals. All military members share the responsibility for maintaining professional relationships. However, the senior member, officer, or enlisted in a personal relationship bears primary responsibility for maintaining professional relationships. Leadership requires personnel to exercise maturity and judgment and avoid relationships that undermine respect for authority or have a negative impact on morale, discipline, or the mission of the Air Force. This is especially true of officers and non-commissioned officers who are expected to exhibit the highest standards of professional conduct and to lead by example. The senior member in a relationship is in the best position to appreciate the effect the relationship could have on an organization and is in the best position to terminate or limit the extent of the relationship. However, all members should expect to be and must be held accountable for how their conduct impacts the Air Force. Commanders and Supervisors Commanders and supervisors at all levels have the authority and responsibility to maintain good order, discipline, and morale within their units. They may be held accountable for failing to act in appropriate cases. Actions in Response to Unprofessional Relationships If a relationship is prohibited by AFI 36-2909 or is causing or if good professional judgment and common sense indicate that a relationship may reasonably result in a degradation of morale, good order, discipline, or unit cohesion, a commander or supervisor should take corrective action. Actions should normally be the least severe necessary to terminate the unprofessional aspects of a relationship, but a full spectrum of administrative actions is available and should be considered. Administrative actions include, but are not limited to, counseling, reprimand, creation of an unfavorable information file, removal from position, reassignment, demotion, delay of or removal from a promotion list, adverse or referral comments in performance reports, and administrative separation. One or more complementary actions can be taken. Experience has shown that counseling is often an effective first step in curtailing unprofessional relationships. More serious cases may warrant administrative action or non-judicial punishment. In order to terminate a relationship or the offensive portion of a relationship can and should be given whenever it is apparent that lesser administrative action may not be effective. Officers or enlisted members who violate such orders are subject to action under the Uniform Code of Military Justice for violation of the order. Instances of actual favoritism, 
partiality, or misuse of grade or position may constitute independent violations of the Uniform Code of Military Justice or the punitive provisions of the Joint Ethics Regulation. Financial Responsibility AFI 36-2906 Personal Financial Responsibility establishes administrative and management guidelines for alleged delinquent financial obligations and for processing financial claims against Air Force members. The AFI also outlines basic rules for garnishment. Responsibilities. Military members will pay their just financial obligations in a proper and timely manner, provide adequate financial support of a spouse, child, or any other relative for which the member receives additional support allowances. Members will also comply with the financial support provisions of a court order or written support agreement. Respond to applications for involuntary allotments of pay within the suspense dates established by the Defense Finance and Accounting Service or the Commander. Handling Complaints Complainants are often unfamiliar with Air Force organizational addresses or do not know the member's actual unit of assignment, and so frequently address correspondence to the installation commander, staff judge advocate, or force support squadron. The complaint is forwarded for action to the individual's commander, who attempts to respond within 15 days. If the member has had a permanent change of station, the complaint is forwarded to the new commander, and the complainant is notified of the referral. If the member has separated with no further military service or has retired, the complainant is notified and informed that the member is no longer under Air Force jurisdiction and the Air Force is unable to assist. Exception. Retired members' retirement pay can be garnished for child support or alimony obligations. Commanders must actively monitor complaints until they are resolved. Failure to pay debts or support dependents can lead to administrative or disciplinary action. If the commander decides the complaint reflects adversely on the member, this action should be included in the unfavorable information file. Personal Financial Management Program The Personal Financial Management Program is an Airman and Family Readiness Center program that offers information, education, and personal financial counseling to help individuals and families maintain financial stability and reach their financial goals. Personal Financial Management Program provides education to all personnel upon arrival at their first duty station. Personal Financial Management Program education includes, at minimum, facts about Personal Financial Management Program, checkbook maintenance, budgeting, credit buying, state or country liability laws, and local fraudulent business practices. The Personal Financial Management Program also provides refresher education for all senior airmen and below upon arrival at a new installation. Personal Financial Management Program services are free. Section 6E, Ethics and Conflict of Interest Prohibitions. Overview. DOD policy requires a single uniform source of standards on ethical conduct and ethics guidance be maintained within DOD. Each DOD agency will implement and administer a comprehensive ethics program to ensure compliance. Bribery and graft. DOD employees and military members are directly or indirectly prohibited from giving, offering, promising, demanding, seeking, receiving, accepting, or agreeing to receive anything of value to influence any official act. They are prohibited from influencing the commission of fraud on the U.S., inducing commitment or omission of any act in violation of a lawful duty, or from influencing testimony given. 
they are prohibited from accepting anything of value for or because of any official act performed or to be performed. These prohibitions do not apply to the payment of witness fees authorized by law or certain travel and subsistence expenses. Compensation from other sources. DOD employees and military members are prohibited from receiving pay or allowance or supplements of pay or benefits from any source other than the U.S. for the performance of official service or duties unless specifically authorized by law. A task or job performed outside normal work hours does not necessarily allow employees to accept payment for performing it. If the undertaking is part of one's official duties, pay for its performance may not be accepted from any source other than the U.S., regardless of when it was performed. Additional pay or allowance. DOD employees and military members may not receive additional pay or allowance for disbursement of public money or for the performance of any other service or duty unless specifically authorized by law. Subject to certain limitations, civilian DOD employees may hold two distinctly different federal government positions and receive salaries for both if the duties of each are performed. Absent specific authority, however, military members may not do so because any arrangement by a military member for rendering services to the federal government in another position is incompatible with the military member's actual or potential military duties. The fact that a military member may have leisure hours during which no official duty is performed does not alter the result. Commercial Dealings Involving DOD Personnel On or off duty, a DOD employee or military member shall not knowingly solicit or make solicited sales to DOD personnel who are junior in rank, grade, or position, or to the family members of such personnel. In the absence of coercion or intimidation, this does not prohibit the sale or lease of a DOD employee's or military member's non-commercial personal or real property or commercial sales solicited and made in a retail establishment during off-duty employment. This prohibition includes the solicited sale of insurance, stocks, mutual funds, real estate, cosmetics, household supplies, vitamins, and other goods or services. Solicited sales by the spouse or other household member of a senior ranking person to a junior person are not specifically prohibited, but may give the appearance that the DOD employee or military member is using public office for personal gain. If in doubt, consult an ethics counselor. Several related prohibitions in this area include engaging in off-duty employment or outside activities that detract from readiness or pose a security risk, as determined by the employee's or member's commander or supervisor, engaging in outside employment or activities that conflict with official duties, receiving honoraria for performing official duties or for speaking, teaching, or writing that relates to one's official duties, misusing an official position, such as improper endorsements or improper use of non-public information, certain post-government service employment, See DOD 5500.07-R, Chapter 9 for specific guidance. Gifts from foreign governments. AFI 51-901, Gifts from foreign governments, requires all Air Force military and civilian personnel and their dependents to report gifts from foreign governments if the gift or a combination of gifts at one presentation exceeds a U.S. retail value of $375. Gifts in excess of this minimal value may be accepted on behalf of the Air Force and a request for disposition instructions should be forwarded to SAF forward slash AA 
within 60 days of receiving the gift. This requirement includes gifts that recipients want to keep for official use or display. The U.S. Attorney General may bring a civil action in any court of the U.S. against any person who knowingly solicits or accepts a gift from a foreign government that is not approved by Congress or who fails to deposit or report such a gift as required by AFI 51-901. Failure to report gifts valued in excess of $375 could result in a penalty not to exceed the retail value of the gift, plus $5,000. Note, the limit on gifts from foreign governments is set by Congress and changes periodically. Be sure to confirm the most current limit with your ethics counselor when considering foreign gift issues. Contributions or presents to superiors. On an occasional basis, including any occasion when gifts are traditionally given or exchanged, the following may be given to an official supervisor by a subordinate or other employees receiving less pay. Items other than cash with an aggregate market value of $10 or less. Items such as food and refreshments to be shared in the office among several employees. Personal hospitality provided at a residence and items given in connection with personal hospitality, which is of a type and value customarily provided by the employee to personal friends. A gift appropriate to the occasion may be given to recognize special infrequent occasions of personal significance, such as marriage, illness, or the birth or adoption of a child. Contributions or presents are also permissible upon occasions that terminate a subordinate official supervisor relationship, such as retirement, separation, or reassignment. Regardless of the number of employees contributing, the market value of the gift cannot exceed $300. Even though contributions are voluntary, the maximum contribution one DOD employee may solicit from another cannot exceed $10. Federal Government Resources Federal government resources, including personnel, equipment, and property, will be used by DOD employees and military members for official purposes only. Agencies may, however, permit employees or military members to make limited personal use of resources other than personnel, such as a computer, calculators, libraries, etc., if the use does not adversely affect the performance of official duties by the employee, military member, or other DOD personnel, is of reasonable duration and frequency, and is made during the employee's or military member's personal time, such as after-duty hours or during lunch periods, serves a legitimate public interest, such as supporting local charities or volunteer services to the community, does not reflect adversely on the DOD, creates no significant additional cost to the DOD or government agency. Communication Systems Federal government communication systems and equipment, including telephones, fax machines, electronic mail, and internet systems, will be used for official use and authorized purposes only. Official use includes emergency communications and, when approved by commanders in the interest of morale and welfare, may include communications by DOD personnel deployed for extended periods on official DOD business. Authorized purposes include brief communication while traveling on government business to notify family members of official transportation or schedule changes. Also authorized are personal communications from the DOD employees or military members' usual workplace that are most reasonably made while at the workplace, such as checking in with spouse or minor children, scheduling doctor, auto, or home repair appointments brief internet searches, and emailing directions to visiting relatives when the agency designee permits. However, 
Many restrictions do apply. Consult DOD-5500.07-R for additional guidance, then consult the organizational point of contact. Gambling, betting, and lotteries. While on federally owned or leased property or while on duty, a DOD employee or military member will not participate in any gambling activity except activities by organizations composed primarily of DOD personnel or their dependents for the benefit of welfare funds for their own members or for the benefit of other DOD personnel or their dependents subject to local law and DOD 5500.07-R. Private wagers among DOD personnel, if based on a personal relationship and transacted entirely within assigned government living quarters and subject to local laws. Lotteries authorized by any state from licensed vendors. Section 6F Political Activities Overview It is Air Force policy to encourage regular Air Force members to carry out their rights and responsibilities of U.S. citizenship. While on regular Air Force members are prohibited from engaging in certain political activities in order to maintain good order and discipline and to avoid conflicts of interest and the appearance of improper endorsement in political matters. For more guidance, see DODD 1344.10, Political Activities by Members of the Armed Forces, and AFI 51-902, Political Activities by Members of the U.S. Air Force. Rights. In general, a member on regular Air Force may register to vote, vote and express his or her personal opinion on political candidates and issues, but not as a representative of the armed forces. Members may make monetary contributions to a political party, organization or committee that favors a political candidate or slate of candidates. They may attend partisan and nonpartisan political meetings or rallies as spectators when not in uniform. Prohibitions. A member on regular Air Force will not use his or her official authority or influence to interfere with an election, affect the course or outcome of an election, solicit votes for a particular candidate or issue, or require or solicit political contributions from others. A member cannot participate in partisan political management, campaigns, or conventions. Members who engage in any of the prohibited activities listed in paragraph 4.1 of AFI 51-902 are subject to prosecution under Article 92 UCMJ, in addition to any other applicable provision of the UCMJ or federal law. A member may not be a candidate for or hold civil office except as outlined in paragraph 6.37.1. Candidacy for elected office. A member may not campaign as a nominee or as a candidate for nomination. However, enlisted members may seek and hold nonpartisan civil office, such as a notary public or school board member, neighborhood planning commission, or similar local agency, as long as such office is held in a private capacity and does not interfere with the performance of military duties. There are also specific exceptions to the prohibition on holding elected office that permit reservists in certain elected or appointed civil offices in federal, state, and local government to remain in office when called to regular Air Force for no more than 270 days. Additional Specific Prohibitions A member may not allow or cause to be published partisan political articles signed or authorized by the member for soliciting votes for or against a partisan political party or candidate. 
serve in any official capacity, or be listed as a sponsor of a partisan political club. Speak before a partisan political gathering of any kind for promoting a partisan political party or candidate. Conduct a political opinion survey under the auspices of a partisan political group or distribute partisan political literature. Perform clerical or other duties for a partisan political committee during a campaign or on election day. March or ride in a partisan political parade. Use contemptuous words against the office holders described in Title 10, U.S. Code Section 888, Contempt Towards Officials, Officers Only. Display a large political sign, banner, or poster, as distinguished from a bumper sticker, on a private vehicle. Display a political sign, banner, or poster on the outside of a residence in government, including privatized housing. For additional prohibitions, refer to AFI 51-902, paragraph 4.1. Voting. The DOD Federal Voting Assistance Program is responsible for administering the Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act. Specifically, the DOD Federal Voting Assistance Program mission is to inform and educate U.S. citizens worldwide of their right to vote, foster voting participation, and protect the integrity of and enhance the electoral process at the federal, state, and local levels. The Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act requires that states and territories allow certain groups of citizens, including military members on regular Air Force and their families, to register and vote in elections for federal offices. In many states, laws exist that allow military members and their families to vote absentee in state and local elections. The Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act requires each federal department and agency with personnel covered by the act to have a voting assistance program. Critical to the success of this program are the voting assistance officers. These individuals, military and civilian, are responsible for providing accurate nonpartisan voting information and assistance to all of the citizens they are appointed to help. They aid in ensuring citizens understand their voting rights to include providing procedures on how to vote absentee. The DOD Federal Voting Assistance Program is responsible for administering the Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act and the Military and Overseas Voter Empowerment Act. Enacted in 1986, Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act protects the right of service members to vote in federal elections regardless of where they are stationed. This law requires that states and territories allow members of the U.S. Uniformed Services and Merchant Marine, their family members, and U.S. citizens residing outside the United States to register and vote absentee in elections for federal offices. In many states, laws exist that allow military members and their families to vote absentee in state and local elections. Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act was expanded significantly in 2009 when Congress passed the Military and Overseas Voter Empowerment Act to provide greater protections for service members, their families, and other overseas citizens. Among other provisions, The Military and Overseas Voter Empowerment Act requires states to transmit validly requested absentee ballots to Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act voters no later than 45 days before a federal election, when the request has been received by that date, except where the state has been granted an undue hardship waiver approved by the Department of Defense for that election. 
The DOD Federal Voting Assistance Program mission is to inform and educate U.S. citizens worldwide of their right to vote, foster voting participation, and protect the integrity of and enhance the electoral process at the federal, state, and local levels. Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act requires each federal department and agency with personnel covered by the act to have a voting assistance program. Critical to the success of this program are the voting assistance officers. These individuals, military and civilian, are responsible for providing accurate, nonpartisan voting information and assistance to all of the citizens they are appointed to help. They aid in ensuring citizens understand their voting rights to include providing procedures on how to vote absentee. More information about the Air Force program can be found in AFI 36-3107 Voting Assistance Program. Dissident and Protest Activities Air Force commanders have the inherent authority and responsibility to take action to ensure the mission is performed and to maintain good order and discipline. This authority and responsibility includes placing lawful restriction on dissident and protest activities. Air Force commanders must preserve the service member's right of expression to the maximum extent possible, consistent with good order, discipline, and national security. To properly balance these interests, commanders must exercise calm and prudent judgment and should consult with the staff judge advocate. For more detail, review AFI 51-903, Dissident and Protest Activities. Possessing or Distributing Printed Materials Air Force members may not distribute or post any printed or written material other than publications of an official government agency or base-related activity within any Air Force installation without permission of the installation commander or that commander's designee. Members who violate this prohibition are subject to disciplinary action under Article 92 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Writing for Publications Air Force members may not write for unofficial publications, including blogs and other electronic social media journalistic forums during duty hours. While unofficial publication, such as an underground newspaper, are not prohibited, they may not be produced using government or non-appropriated fund property or supplies on or off duty. Any publication that contains language, the utterance of which is punishable by the Uniform Code of Military Justice, or other federal laws may subject a person involved in its printing, publishing, or distribution to prosecution or other disciplinary action. Off-Limits Action Action may be initiated under AFJI 31-213, Armed Forces Disciplinary Control Boards in Off-Installation Liaison in Operations, to make certain establishments off-limits. An establishment runs the risk of being off-limits if its activities include counseling service members to refuse to perform their duties or to desert, or when involved in acts with a significant adverse effect on health, welfare, or morale of military members. Prohibited Activities Military personnel must reject participation in organizations that espouse supremacist causes, attempt to create illegal discrimination based on race, color, gender, religion, national origin, or ethnic group, Advocate the use of force or violence, otherwise engage in the effort to deprive individuals of their civil rights, or knowingly wear gang colors, clothes, tattoos, or body markings. Active participation, such as publicly demonstrating or rallying fundraising, recruiting, and training members, 
organizing or leading such organizations, or otherwise engaging in activities the commander finds to be detrimental to good order, discipline, or mission accomplishment is incompatible with military service and prohibited. Members who violate this prohibition are subject to disciplinary action under Article 92 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Demonstrations and Similar Activities Demonstrations or other activities within an Air Force installation that could result in interfering with or preventing the orderly accomplishment of a mission of the installation or which present a clear danger to loyalty, discipline, or morale of members of the armed forces are prohibited and are punishable under Article 92 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Air Force members are prohibited from participating in demonstrations when they are on duty in a foreign country in uniform, involved in activities that constitute a breach of law and order or when violence is likely to result. Public Statements When making public statements, AFI 35-101, Public Affairs Responsibilities and Management, governs members. Each Air Force member has a personal responsibility for the success of the Air Force Public Affairs Program. As representatives of the service in both official and unofficial contact with the public, members have many opportunities to contribute to positive public opinions toward the Air Force. Therefore, each person must strive to make contact show the highest standards of conduct and reflect the Air Force core values. Do. Specifically, each Air Force member is responsible for obtaining the necessary review and clearance, starting with public affairs, before releasing any proposed statement, text, or imagery to the public. This includes digital products being loaded on an unrestricted website. Members must ensure the information revealed, whether official or unofficial, is appropriate for release according to classification requirements in DODI 5200.01. Department of Defense Information Security Program and Protection of Sensitive Compartmented Information and AFPD 31-4 Information Security. Don't. Air Force members must not use their Air Force Association official title or position to promote, endorse, or benefit any profit-making agency. This does not prohibit members from assuming character or modeling roles in commercial advertisement during their non-duty hours. However, they cannot wear their uniform or allow their Air Force title or position to be affixed to the advertisement in any manner or imply Air Force endorsement of the product or service being promoted. Additionally, they must not make any commitment to provide official Air Force information to any non-DOD member or agency, including news media, before obtaining approval through command or public affairs channels. Conclusion This chapter explained Air Force standards of conduct. Airmen must learn these standards well enough to be able to clearly explain them to subordinates, observe these standards, and always enforce their observation by other members. Used in concert with information presented in Chapters 5 and 19, this information covered essential issues vital to good order and discipline and mission effectiveness.